from the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that goes deep into the stories behind some of our biggest thinkers. I'm Edwina Throsby. Denise Ho was always going to be an activist. The canto pop superstar had built a massively successful career and could have continued on her path of major label success. But in 2012, she became the first mainstream female singer in Hong Kong to come out as gay and was promptly abandoned by much of the industry. She responded by setting up her own label and becoming a high-profile advocate for the LGBTQI community. In 2014, when huge pro-democracy protests broke out in Hong Kong, Denise's activism went to a whole new level. She's become one of the most prominent figures in the umbrella movement, spoken at the UN and all around the world, and continues to risk her own life and freedom on behalf of the cause. In this episode, she's speaking with Benjamin Law at Antidote Festival in 2019. Denise Ho, welcome to It's a Long Story. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Now, we're talking at a pretty crucial and pivotal time in Hong Kong when we're talking face-to-face. The situation there has really escalated. Yes. I want to talk about the politics of Hong Kong Mm -hmm. and its tensions with mainland China. But before we do, I also want to talk about Hong Kong as a place, as a city and as a region. (laughs) And you spent the first decade of your life essentially in Hong Kong where you were born. Yes. What are your earliest memories of Hong Kong? I remember I I was living next to this amusement park. Ah. And uh well it's it's gone now, but um you know I remember all those rides with with those um cartoons and uh you know very basic stuff. That was a a very uh signature park in the 80s. Mm. So those were the good times. Mm. Yeah. Hong Kong does love a theme park. Does yes. do them quite well. Yes. Nowadays, there's this increasing shift towards Hong Kongers not identifying explicitly as Chinese. Mm -hmm, There's this mm -hmm. growing identity of a Hong Konger in and of itself. Was there a strong sense of what it meant, of what it meant to be a Hong Konger when you were growing up? Well, I mean, that image was not as clear uh, as it is now because we were a British British colony back then and uh, there were a lot of uh, freedoms and rights that were just given to us. So we really never had to talk about, you know, what is the meaning of the Hong Kong identity. You weren't wrestling with national identity or what it was, what it was no, to be a Hong Konger no. separate from being Chinese. No, re- really. I, I mean, we we were a British colony and then we were handed back to China in 1997. But then before that, um, you know, of course there is this fear uh, about the handover that would be happening. And so that was why a lot of families, including mine and my parents, uh, they chose to leave Hong Kong. Uh, We left for Montreal, Canada. What year was that? Uh, It was 1988, Mm. actually, just before the the crackdown in Beijing, uh, the Tiananmen massacre. And so, um, you know, I I guess that fear was... uh, very real at that time. But for me, you know, I was 10, 11. So I just uh, followed you know, the, my family. But I guess, of course, at that time, and also in many different times, even right now, this this fear of the communist government is uh, very present among the communities. And this this kind of, you know, not knowing what is in place for for Hong Kongers in the future, that is something uh, 
that has existed since the 80s and now going into you know, 2019, everything is coming to the surface. Mm. Like these fears that were just inside everyone's hearts is becoming very real. Mm. Yeah. We'll return to that point soon. Your family story very much mirrors my extended family story in that mm. there was a big exodus from Hong Kong around the mid to late 1980s. People were going to Canada where your family yeah. ended up and people right. were trying to get into Australia where my extended family mm-hmm. ended up. There was a real palpable fear, as you were saying, of what was happening with communism in China. Now that you're an adult and you understand the politics properly and you have mm-hmm. these conversations with mm-hmm. your parents, it is such a huge thing to pack up and move to a foreign country. How yes. do they talk about that period? How do they talk about that fear? Well, my dad, he, you know, sometimes he, he talks about it, but not a lot. You know, you know, Asian families, we don't chat that much. But um, I guess for them at that time, they were thinking of our futures. Uh, it's very difficult, really, to when you have your families and uh, your whole life, you have been in this place. Uh, where you call home and mm. then you have to find a new home. For these this community to feel the need to always leave when there are mm. problems, that is something that is very sad, actually. So you left when you were 11 years old, is that right? And so yes. you head over to Canada. Mm-hmm. You've described going to Montreal and emigrating there as a city that taught you how to be a person. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, you know Canada. Canada is a very, very free society and uh, Montreal especially is a very um, accepting and diversified city where during the eight years I I spent there, my teenage years, I really never felt that kind of, you know, being being an outsider. Uh, I I was very accepted uh, within my friends and uh, although... Uh, I went to a French school, so um, you know there were very, very few Asians there. Uh, probably, you know, just three, including myself and my brother. <laughs> the other one was a Vietnamese boy. So, uh, you know, in that context, I never felt left like outside of of that circle. And um, and of course, you know, Canada is comparatively to Hong Kong, it's very non-materialistic. So it's always the individual and, you know, the the, the freedoms before the materialistic side of things. Mm. So when I went back to Hong Kong, that made a huge difference uh, in in, uh, my my mentality, the way my values. I spent a lot of years feeling like an outcast when Mm. I was back in Hong Kong, actually. So your teen years coincided with your Canadian years and Canada is known for being so progressive and liberal. Yes. And I'm wondering, did being in Canada during that phase mm-hmm. of your life also help you also accept yourself as a gay person? Yes, um, but I no, I must admit I had my struggles too because uh, you know, I grew up in the 90s so we did not have the internet back then. <laughs> And so it was difficult to find this community as a teenager. So uh, I remember I went to, you know, there's this uh, LGBTQ bookstore in the centre-ville, in the, in the downtown of, of Montreal. And so when I turned 16, I could, you know, I got my driver's license and then I could drive there on my own. 
I didn't have to ask my parents. Of course, I couldn't ask my parents. So I went to that bookstore after school and I just, you know, I just spent a lot of time there. And uh, to just to get a, a sense of, um, you know, I'm not alone in this, in this uh, personal struggle. Mm. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about your music career. When did your musical ambitions start to come out? It started uh, as a very secret dream, um, you know, inside my head only, because um, because of my idol, actually, Anita mm. Mui, who is a uh, pop diva from the 80s in, in canto pop. And she was also a very, very outspoken person you know, mm. concerning these social issues. And uh, like, for example, she was very, very outspoken during the 1989 uh, Tiananmen massacre. She would essentially sing songs dedicated yes. to victims of that massacre. Yes, and she, she was in, in total support of the Beijing students. And I believe she had helped some of the students flee the country later on. Mm. And so, um, you know, when you are a teenager and your idol is someone who has this kind of uh, social responsibility and she acts on it, that made a huge impact on me. Did it also teach you about what pop music could do? Because I think some outsiders mm -hmm. to Cantonese pop don't understand that there is a proud kind of marriage between political discussion and pop music. It's not just right. love songs and all that sort of stuff, which is really important but it's also has also traditionally carried messages that can be quite that can be quite galvanizing yes um well i mean anita she was she was more of a you know glamorous diva sort of singer but in her so-called spare time <laughs> she chose to to get involved in these very political and social issue. And so you yeah. idolised Anita Mui and yeah. um, later she would become your mentor. But what was your first big break into the industry? Uh, I did the same singing contest as she did, uh, the new talent singing contest. And so actually at that time I was you know, only as a super fan who was trying to get a glimpse of my idol. But of course in my heart I... I really loved to sing. And so I won that contest. And then later on, uh, you know, I started my career uh, around 2001. So my, my journey towards, um, you know, this small social and political side of things was gradual. Mm. Like in the, in the beginning uh, of my career, it was mostly I was trying to figure out, you know, who I am as a singer or as a person. And gradually, you just start to think, okay, you know, what next? Mm. You know, how, how should I be using this uh, music platform that I have, you know, which is so precious because not many people have that. I could voice out my thoughts and my opinions with my music. And mm. the next step would be, okay, so what should I be doing with this role uh, as a, a, a celebrity or, say, or as a public figure where... I can voice out other people's 
problems. Your career starts a few years after Hong Kong has been handed back to China. What was the mood like initially in Hong Kong when the handover was taking place? We very much know what the mood is like now in Hong Kong about the impending takeover, the impending handover back to China. But what about at 1997 in the early 2000s when you were starting out? Um, to be honest, that wasn't a real issue um, for me back then because mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, on the appearance and every everything was fine. You know, for I, I I mean for a lot of Hong Kongers, you know, our our parents were afraid of nineteen ninety seven, but then when it really happened, uh, we couldn't see any changes. Like uh, it seemed okay changes. to begin with. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. like we we got. A lot of the so-called economic benefits from the Chinese government, uh, the Chinese market, and even our freedoms, they weren't as eroded as they are now. Mm. So we still had our rule of law. We still had our legislative system. So, uh, and as you know, you know, Hong Kong has never been so involved in politics before. Like we were taught and educated to be indifferent to to these political issues for maybe 10 or like 10 or 12 years we thought we were okay and then we gradually saw the change Uh, like say the media has been bought up by a lot of these Chinese investors or even maybe the Chinese government and then in 2012 when Xi Jinping came onto the stage that was when we first started to feel this impact of the communist government, their control over Hong Kong, mm. because we no longer had a fair media and also you know, businesses and uh, uh, these corporates, they are all looking at the China market. So when there are issues, all these businesses, they would just stay silent. And so all the the young people, they have no, uh, like they, they cannot really uh, see their future. I mean, you talk about how huge that market is in mainland China. Yeah. And if you're someone who works within the world of art, within mm-hmm. the world of popular culture, within mm-hmm. popular music, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people will want to make efforts to tap into that market. Cantonese yeah. pop was so popular in mainland China for such a long time, but now you've got this growing Mando pop market. Mm. A lot of people who are Cantonese background starting to sing in Mandarin. You do sing in Mandarin as well, but you're also having to navigate the politics and your own values mm. in doing that. How do you navigate those complications? I mean, this is a very complicated issue where in the 80s and the 90s, the Hong Kong culture was blossoming and people really worldwide, like all the Chinese people worldwide knew about Hong Kong movies and mm. Hong Kong singers and you know, the superstars who came from the 80s. And suddenly, after the, the, like, uh, the handover, people started to look at the China market. And of course, you know, in China, there are so many censorships. There's so many things that you cannot talk about. And even in movies, like you cannot talk about ghosts, you cannot talk about religion, you cannot talk about LGBTQ communities and so on. And so that sort of um, loss of the, the freedoms uh, in creativity, it has taken its toll 
on the whole Hong Kong entertainment industry because people would, uh, you know, the the movie directors and all the creators, really, they would be self-censoring themselves. Mm. And then the creativity would would be sacrificed. Right now, at this moment, it is even getting into an escalated uh, situation where everyone basically are afraid of saying anything. Like, you cannot be in support of the protesters, of course. And you cannot even stay silent. Like, you have to voice out your support for the communist government. And there are consequences either way. Either either stance you take, there are consequences on you as an artist or even if you're in business or any other realm. It makes me think one of the songs on your first Mandarin language album was dedicated to Lu Xiaobo, who was was detained in 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, He also criticised the one-party rule. What was the public reaction when you released that song? And were you were you worried about the reaction? That was in 2010. Oh, 2010. Yeah. And uh, so that was a bit earlier. And it was more like a metaphor. The, the whole song, you know, I, I had that message, but I didn't really say it out uh, in public and to, to tell everyone about that. It was more, you know, I was... I was testing the the waters even back then i still drew that kind of line where you know i knew that okay i shouldn't pass that line because if i pass that line then i could no longer go into china i could no longer do you know what i i i was doing back then uh but of course you know in 2014 th- with the first tear gassing that that came from the police that just that, that was just, the line for yes, you. Yes, that was the bottom line. And I just chose to uh, stand with the people. Let's talk about the Umbrella Movement and what's happened mm-hmm. since. Um in your speech at the Oslo Freedom Forum, you've said that you'd always felt out of place in Hong Kong. But when the Umbrella Movement came around, you finally felt what you called a real sense of belonging. So prior to the Umbrella Movement, why had you felt out of place? And what did the Umbrella Movement give you? Mm-hmm. And how did it engender belonging? I have always felt like an outcast in the Hong Kong society because back in the earlier days, I was trying to voice out my concerns for these social issues. But then everyone else, especially in the entertainment industry, they were all focused on uh, you know, the, the, the glamorous side of things and how to get the recognition and the awards and all, all, all the, that sort of thing. I was signed to major labels back then. And so there would always be this kind of force opposing my decisions. And I would always be pulled back and uh, questions qu- would would come from them, uh, you know, telling me, "Oh, you shouldn't do this, or you shouldn't do that. It would be better for your career." And so I thought I was alone in in my whole beliefs or, or these values that I had. And then suddenly, in two thousand fourteen, when the Umbrella Movement happened, all these people that I knew didn't knew existed came onto the streets, and everyone was there for everyone else, like. We were so selfless in those 79 days uh, where you know people occupied the streets and then all this whole system was set up 
by people you know, on their own will. And an ecosystem infrastructure, yes. people holding like uh, tutorial classes yes. and first aid lessons and yes. things like that. And like people were uh, cooking for other people and then they would just bring the food and the the tong shui, the, the mm. desserts. They would bring it onto the streets and then they would just uh, give them out for free. Like this, that was like a, an utopian version of Hong Kong. For this, that very short period of time. Because there is that kind of outside perception, and I have family in Hong Kong as well, and when I used to visit when I was younger, I would think, I love Hong Kong, but materialistic and maybe a little bit soulless as a result. Yeah, but, selfish. Yeah. yeah, but then the Umbrella Movement really changed how I saw mm-hmm. Hong Kong as well. Yes. It reminded me that central to the culture is a sense of defiance, that man- mm-hmm. manifests mm-hmm. as protest. That there's actually been a long history yes. of protest and community um, in Hong Kong. Well, and also, you know, that the kind of creativity that we saw on the streets back then, where you know, people were were uh, putting up sculptures and art installations and paintings and all sorts of different kinds of expressions of creativity that we never knew existed in Hong Kong. And so... No, somehow I looked at that and I understood finally that you know, we are not that so-called desert of culture that people thought we were. When we realized that there are people who don't want that kind of life that our parents had, mm. where they were only working, 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 and there's nothing else to life. And so I guess Umbrella Movement was the start of everything. Mm. Um, the seed that was planted. But of course, you know, back then when the, the streets were cleared, we thought that was a failure because uh, nothing really immediate came out of it. And so we went through this very um, discouraging five years where people were very, very disappointed and angry, you know, all sorts of emotions. And how the on. umbrella movement had panned out? Yes, mm. yes. And, uh, but then... You know, this year, in 2019, we had this huge comeback. And it's it's just amazing. Nobody thought it would happen. But then it's just a proof that the Umbrella Movement was not for nothing. It's a huge comeback, but it's also a huge comeback of force that's been opposing the Mm. resurgence of what is essentially the the second wave of protest. Um, How worried are you about the show of force that the Hong Kong police have been displaying against protesters? It is infuriating. It is very, very shocking to see how the Hong Kong government, they have been hiding behind the police force, turning a blind eye to all the problems and the demands that the people are requesting. And at the same time, uh, you know, you see the this total authority that has been given to the police to suppress the people. The communist government behind that, they have never changed. You know, they have never made any progress since 1989. They, they have been the same people, only, you know, maybe having a better and, and uh, more perfected front where they were trying to give out the impression that, oh, you know, it's different now than 30 years ago. Mm. It is just the same repressive and authoritarian government who does not allow freedom of speech and who are afraid of the people, of the people standing up. When I talk to my cousins in Hong Kong, they say very much the same thing, that 
They can't see this changing. They can't see the Beijing government, the PPC changing. And yet, in amongst all their hopelessness, that's why they continue to fight. I mean, other people, mm -hmm. I imagine, if you feel hopelessness and despair, that's when you stop protesting. That's when you stop fighting. What is it in Hong Kong culture? What is it in Hong Kong people where in amongst hopelessness, they keep turning up to protest? Well, first of all, I'm not hopeless. In the long run, I see hope in all the actions of the people. We are coming to an understanding of what we are actually in face of. We're not in face of the Hong Kong government, neither are we in face of the Hong Kong police. We are actually in face of this ruthless machine that is the communist government. But with you know, all the police brutality that we have seen in the past two and a half, more, almost three months, it is only making Hong Kong people stronger in their determination. The more they suppress, the more Hong Kong people fight back. And at the end of the day, I, I still believe that you know, in, in this saying that the powers and the people, especially now when, when Xi Jinping, actually he is in face of not only the problem of Hong Kong, but really 360 degree of problems where you know, he is in a trade war with the U.S., and then uh, the elections coming next year with, with Taiwan. And of course, there is a lot of internal problems uh, with the Chinese, Chinese economy. They mm. are having problems. They are having debts. And, you know, Xinjiang, the human rights issues, the violations, and all these things are as a whole. Mm. And Hong Kong, of course, is in the front lines of this fight, which... I, I see shifts happening you know, in the world. There are a lot of moving parts yes, to a very complicated yes, situation absolutely. that isn't just about Hong Kong and yes. China, but China's relationship with the rest of the world. Yes. In all of this, you've also been putting yourself on the line and stepping up. Uh, in July this year, you spoke at the Human Rights Council in the UN. Um, in a 90-second slot, you told the council that human rights were under attack in Hong Kong and asked it to suspend China as a member of the 47-nation body for its abuses. Now, China has a great deal of power, both within the UN and over countries in the UN. So your appeal may not have registered within the UN itself. What was your main goal in making that speech? You know, it's, it's, we are in a world where these authoritarian governments, they are making this sort of alliance where they will protect each other on these uh, human rights issues, and uh, they are in the majority because you know China has huge power on a lot of different countries uh, on the economic side. So I knew that you know going into the UN to, to speak, the change might not happen exactly in that council. So in these very difficult times, I think the power is back to the people where we have to speak up against these governments. You've already been blacklisted by mainland China, essentially. Does this kind of make you worried about your personal safety? We've seen what's been mm. happening to prominent protesters, to mm -hmm. prominent uh, protest leaders, and even parliamentarians, former and current, in Hong right, Kong. Right. People are being targeted specifically. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about being targeted in that sort of way? I, I'm ready to, uh, you know, if I'll be arrested than be it. You know, I, I, that is something that I have been preparing myself mentally for. 
since uh, very early on. But recently, I think the threats have gone to another level where there have been gangsters and uh, like triads being deployed to uh, take care of the people. And so that is also a real threat. Uh, you know, I, I even have personally heard uh, you know, some of these, these threats, not directly to me, but you know, through some friends saying that, oh, that someone wants to do something to you. So I'm, I'm aware of that. And, uh, and of course, you know, all the, the Chinese communities who are voluntarily standing up for uh, these pro-Beijing movements. And those are barbarians who would beat up people. So this sort of nationalism is creating a lot of problems everywhere in the world, actually. Mm. It's not a self-contained yeah. situation anymore. It's spilling no. all over the globe, yes. including Australia, yes. like you say. With that in mind, you have been travelling around the world mm -hmm. talking about the situation in Hong Kong as you see it. And when you do explain the situation to global audiences, mm -hmm. what do they find most surprising or unexpected about what's happening there? We, we do have to explain a lot that you know we are not fighting for Hong Kong independence. Uh, at the moment, uh, we are fighting for what has been promised by the Chinese government, by Deng Xiaoping, to us uh, in the 80s. Like, uh, we are fighting for our autonomy that was promised in the basic law uh, when, when you know, the, the Chinese uh, took back Hong Kong. And so uh, the universal suffrage that we are asking for is also written in the basic law. Uh, we were supposed to get the chance to elect our CE in 2008, and it is still not happening. We are 11 years later. And so all these problems, um, it's just really a reflection on how the communist government, they cannot keep promises. Denise, in your speech at the Oslo Freedom Forum, you also said, for the first time in our dictated history, we have finally come into our own definition of who we are. We are neither Chinese nor British. We are Hong Kongers. Mm -hmm. What does that identity of Hong Konger mean to you? Well, we are this very unique species of people. You know, we have taken the very best values from the Brit British. And then we also have this kind of traditional Chinese heritage in our daily lives and our, in our blood. And so... Like we are this hybrid of East and West where we created this new identity and we are this very flexible and very fast learning community. And so that is something that is really unique to ourselves. And, um, and that, of course, is something that the Chinese government do not understand. They don't understand this kind of free mind where... The Hong Kong people could never be suppressed like the, the Chinese from mainland China who have been born into that system. Hong Kong people, we are not intimidated by these kinds of uh, tactics. And of course, we, we, we are scared at times. But then some other values and priorities you know, go on top of that fear. And then we overcome that fear. Before we leave you, um, Hong Kong is scheduled to be handed back to China fully in its own way in 2047. With what's going on now, mm -hmm. what kind of Hong Kong would you like to have in 2047? And are you optimistic about getting there? I am a believer of change. 
And I am you know, a strong believer also in the people, in the power of people. And I believe that as long as we can keep this kind of faith and courage and determination in the people, anything is possible. Denise Ho, thank you so much. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.